Colson's book on Job uh, this past week, and Chuck Colson was saying that he had told a buddy of his that he was going to be writing a book on the life of Job, and his preaching friend said, you better not do that. He said, why not? He said, because you know how the Lord likes to make sermon illustrations out of your life. And so I immediately thought of, uh-oh. Uh, so I, many of y'all are kind of aware, Claire and I were back and forth uh, to the doctor's offices this past week, and so we appreciate y'all's many prayers and all the many folks that reached out to us with your um, encouragement, words of encouragement, and we'll keep you posted as things move forward. Um, I also wanted to, this morning before I get going, I just thought it was appropriate for us to congratulate one of our folks here at church, a young man down here by the name of Chris DeLay. You know, Chris, you can wave your hand. Chris. <laughs> Chris ran, this past week at Disney, he ran a 5K, followed by a 10K the next day, followed by a half marathon the next day, followed by a full marathon. So, I mean, all right, brother. So if there's anything around here you'd else you'd like to do, I and mean, we can sign you up, we've got a long list of stuff. So, um, But that's awesome, man. I was, I was blown away when I heard that. My, uh, my mom used to read this book to me when I was growing up. I don't know if you all are familiar with this or not. It's called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. So um, I was thinking about this book when I realized I was going to be doing a series of the book of Job. And so I just want to share a couple of pages, uh, excerpts, if you would, from this book. And so here we go. Here's, this is kind of from page one. He says, this is Alexander. He doesn't look too happy, does he? He said, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and there was gum in my hair. When I got up out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard. And by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink. While the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, next page, he says, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car in his box of cereal. Nick, my other brother, found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. Um, on his way to school, he says, in a carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get my seat by the window, I'm going to be sick to my stomach. No one even answered. Uh, as the story goes on, he goes to the dentist's office. He has a cavity. He goes to his dad's office. He makes a mess of things at his dad's office. He, goes to get, uh, he gets pushed in a mud puddle by his brother. When his mom shows up, she blames him for being muddy. And so all these terrible things are happening to him. When you get to the end of the story, um, it's time for him to go to bed. And here's poor old um, Alexander. He says, when I went to bed, Nick took my pillow that he said I could keep. And the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are just like that. And so I remember this story as I was kind of uh, going through the book of Job, and I thought, you know, that's kind of well, the kind of day that Job's about ready to have. So our text today comes from Job chapter 1. We just started a series last week looking at the life of the great man of God, Job. And so this is week 2. We saw lots of, learned lots of things about Job last week. We saw that he was a very wealthy man. We saw that he was a man after God's own heart. We saw he was a man that had 10 children, that he loved his 10 children. His 10 children all got along really well with one another. He just had a lot of good things going for him in his life. God even calls him blameless and upright. But then this day of days happens. And so it starts, it picks up at verse 14. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. And we will read three out of the four disasters that happened in Job's life. So here we go, beginning at verse 14 through 17. Here we go. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. 
And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You may be seated. So we're reading about all of these disasters that just come into the life of Job. Let's kind of dig into some of these. Um, We'll start at verse 13, actually. It says, Now there was a day when his sons, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. We learned earlier in the chapter that Job's brothers and sisters used to get together on one another's birthdays. And they would also always meet at the home of the birthday boy or the birthday girl. There were seven boys and seven girls. And so being that they're getting together at the house of the eldest brother, more than likely this is the eldest brother's, uh, this is Job Jr.'s birthday, if you would. Verse 14, And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. Verse 15, it says, And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them, so took the donkeys, took the um, oxen, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. Now, I've got a map for you here, and this map shows the Sabaeans. They were from the kingdom of Sheba, or some call it the kingdom of Sheba, uh, which is where modern-day Yemen is, so just above the ear of Africa. um, This is where these folks were from. And uh, archaeologists tell us that there was a people group called the Sabaeans that were from this part of the world, and they were a warring group of people. They were a marauding group of people at this point in human history. So this is who Job is referring to here, or chapter 1 and verse 15 is referring to here, that the Sabaeans fell upon Job. Now you think about it, Job has 1,000 oxen, Job has 7,000 sheep, Job has 3,000 camels, so Job would have been a ripe target for a marauding group of people. And so that's what happens. Um, if you recall, most family farms had one pair of oxen, maybe two. Those oxen would be sufficient to plow all the family grounds, um, all the acreage that, that, that would support that one family. Uh, but this guy, Job, owns 500 pair of oxen, which is 1,000 oxen. Um, and so Job, we would think, was, was more of an industrial farmer, right? He farmed on a more grand scale than just your average family farm. Uh, the servants report to Job, verse 14, that the oxen were plowing. So these were not just grazing pets that Job has. These were working animals. They were producing revenue for Job and for his family. Um, at, they were part of the agricultural engine that Job oversaw. Verse 15 says that the Sabaeans took the oxen and the 500 female donkeys that were grazing alongside the oxen. Now, it is widely known that female donkeys produce the sweetest milk amongst the animals of the ancient Near East. So again, they're taking not just from Job these animals, but they're taking this tremendous revenue source that supported Job and all the people that were under him. Altogether, this loss represents about one-third of Job's wealth. I think we would agree that this is the start of a terrible horrible, no good, very bad day. And as if the loss of these animals was not enough, consider the last part of what the servant says. Verse 15, he says the Sabaeans not only took the animals, but get this, but they also struck down the servants. That is, they struck down Job's workforce. So all the people that used to take care of these camels, or all of these um, oxen, and all of these donkeys, they struck them down with the edge of the sword, and this one lone guy Uh, as the one who escaped, he said, and I have come to report this to you. Friends, this is news of of a massive loss of life. 
Job's loved these people. These were his workers. But they were more than workers. They were like family to him. He knew, their, he knew them. He knew their kids. He probably knew their grandparents. A farm like this, of this vast scale, was a community unto itself. I mean, people didn't commute in from the suburbs to come work at Job's farm. They lived there. I mean, they raised their kids along the stalls where these donkeys were being milked, alongside the places where these sheep, uh, these sheep were being kept. Job was a man of great integrity. We learn later in the book of Job that when he would actually go to town, that the uh, elders of the town would rise and they would meet him at the gate of the town, not just because of his vast wealth, not just because of his status, but also because he was known to be a man of such high integrity. Job, um, and so to learn that one-third of his workforce had just been murdered, I would imagine, likely, this caused Job's knees to buckle. Sadly, though, the day is not over yet. Look at verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another who said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them all. One commentator said, suggested that perhaps this was a lightning storm that set fire to the prairie grasses around where these sheep were grazing and the prairie grasses went ablaze and that all of the animals were consumed. It's possible. That's one explanation. Um, also, another explanation might be that this was fire from heaven, similar to what happened when the, uh, Elijah was having a contest with the prophets of Baal, that fire came down from heaven and uh, consumed all of those sacrifices that uh, Elijah had made on the, on the altar and all the water that was there and licked all of that up. Um, but the point is, the result was that another third of Job's wealth has just disappeared. I mean, just gone, just, just eviscerated. All of his sheep, all of his servants who tended them, another massive loss of human life. Now, I'm going to stop here with this story because, quite honestly, that's enough tragedy for one sermon, right? I don't really want to get into the rest of it. That's about all that I can personally handle, maybe you as well. I think you get the picture here. This day for Job and for his family is a cataclysmic day. It's a day of complete and total disaster. This has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. This man is emotionally wrecked. Think about his poor wife. I mean, she's experiencing this right there alongside of him. Uh, she's, she's experiencing the loss and the, and, the, and the trauma of this right there alongside of him. Um, in fact, I've got a painting for you here, and it's the, it's the slide that we're using for the uh, series. Uh, this is a painting by a French artist named Gustave Dor. He was famous for creating these biblical scenes. And in this particular painting, this is a little bit of a zoomed-in picture of it. This painting is called Job Hearing of His Ruin. And you can see Job there. He's got his hand up against, he's right next to the doorpost. He's got his hand up against his forehead. It's a picture of woe. It's a picture of W-O-E, right? It's a picture of a man who is distraught. You can see his wife in the shadows in the background behind him, and she's down on her knees with her hands clutched up toward heaven, just crying out to God. He's got in the foreground of this picture the last of the servants coming to report about what's happened to his family. And you can see the other servants who have already reported in. They're off to Job's right, and they are, um, they're also distraught. One of them is so distraught, he's fallen on the ground, and his face is in the dirt, and he's got his hands over the back of his head. I mean, this is a picture of a group of people who are just devastated. Um, and so, uh, and again, you get the picture. Job has just had the worst day, the worst news. And when we think about somebody going through something like this, I mean, a heart just can't help but break for a guy like Job. All right, well, that is our treatment of this story for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? 
Great question. Let's see if we can answer that. As we examine the story of Job, it raises the question of why. Why do bad things happen when we serve a supposedly good and loving God? Why would a good God allow good people to suffer? I mean, that, that's an age-old question, right? And that's the question that Job is trying to wrestle with and Job is trying to deal with. Uh, this man of, great, of high integrity, this is the guy that God spoke of in the book of Ezekiel and said, Job's just like Noah. Job's just like Daniel. He's a man of such superior integrity. God has such a high opinion of him. God even calls him in Job chapter 1 and verse 1, blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. So why him, right? This is not Job the murderer. This is not Job the town drunk. This is not Job the thief. This is Job the man of God. And so it's perfectly logical then for us to ask. It's perfectly reasonable for us to ask why. Why, God, would you allow something like this to befall Job? Why would a good God allow something like this to happen? Uh, That's a fair question. And not only that, but it is the question that dominates the rest of the book of Job. Uh, We will end up hearing in the coming weeks from Job's friends, um, each of them as they're grappling with what's happened to Job and trying to give reason and rationale to try and put some logic behind why this has happened. We'll hear from some of his friends. We'll hear from Job himself. We'll hear from Job's wife. Um, But in all of that, what's interesting is um, the looming question, uh, and it's a question that's central to the book of Job and certainly to your life and to mine, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, Three reasons this morning I want to share with you. Three reasons why bad things happen to good people. Number one, bad things happen first and foremost because we live in a fallen world. First and foremost, we live because we live in a fallen world. If you have your Bibles or you can follow along with me on the screen, flip back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Life is just going along great. Things are perfect. Everybody feels really good. Nobody's ever got a sniffle or anything like that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, Satan shows up and he tempts Adam and Eve and they eat of the tree that they're not supposed to eat from. And as a result of that, as a result of their sin, God issues out three curses. Let's read some of these. So starting at verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, so here comes the first curse. It's directed at the serpent. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 16, skipping ahead. So now God's going to talk to the woman. He says, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and child rearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, you will find a man's leadership as a result of sin displeasing. You will chafe under a man's leadership. It will find it difficult, but he will end up ruling over you anyway. So we've got two curses here issued out from God, two disastrous results of the sins of Adam and Eve. One of them is directed at the serpent. The second is directed at the woman. And then the third curse, and you'll note that though God is speaking to the man, though he's talking to Adam, the actual curse is directed at the soil. Okay, let's take a look at this, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat from, because you did that, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Here's my point. When Adam and Eve sinned, paradise that they were living in was lost. Death, decay, disease became a part of the world that they inhabit. 
death, decay, disease also became a part of their experience of this world. I mean, the Bible says, Romans 3 and verse 23, I don't have this as one of our slides, but Romans 3 and 23, for the wages of sin is death. Yes, that's one of the results of sin coming into our human existence. So we live, in, we live now in a very different world than the one that Adam and Eve were placed into. So why do bad things happen to good people? Because we live in a fallen or cursed world. Friends, this is not heaven. Let me say that again. This is not heaven. Things like heart disease and cancer, those things happen here. They won't happen there. Things like murder and all sorts of natural disasters and COVID-19, those sorts of things are part of the results of this world being cursed. Paul talks about this over in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 19, Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager anticipation, eager longing, for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, For the creation was subjected, just as Adam and Eve were, to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Referring there to the curse that God placed in the soil in the garden. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, since Genesis chapter 3, in the pains of childbirth until now, waiting for the day when God will renew and bring things back to paradise the way they were before. So why do bad things happen to good people? Why me? Why now? That's my sermon title today. Why me? Why now? Because sometimes, I dare say most of the time, it's because we live in this fallen world. Now, what difference does that make to your life and to mine? Well, it should cause us to stop and ask the question, what am I living for? Am I trying to build heaven for myself here? Because that, ha- that, that can't happen. It won't work. In fact, Job goes on to say here in a couple of verses, he said, naked I came into the world, and naked I'm going to go out of the world. In other words, I came in with nothing, and I'm going to go out with nothing. So why am I trying to build up for myself an experience and insulate myself from harm and insulate myself from tragedy and disaster. I know there's a certain amount of that that we do. But friends, again, this is not heaven. This is not eternity. And so Jesus spoke to us about this. He said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, he said, store up. Look, if the Bible is telling us the truth about that this world is, is not the end, then we need to listen to these words. He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where neither thieves, uh, where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, don't store up for yourself. Don't put the energies of your life toward building up treasures at some place that you're going to leave one day. And you're going to leave it all behind. Can't take it with you. Number two, second difference this makes to your life and to mine. Second reason why bad things happen to good people. Is because God uses bad things. God uses adversity to refine us. Let me say that again. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's because sometimes God uses those struggles and difficulties as part of his grand plan to refine us and to grow us, to mature us. Let me say this. It's just my observation. I could be a little bit wrong, but I don't think I am. I've never seen this. I've never seen this uh, truism, if you would, uh, whatever the word is I'm looking for. <laughs> Here's my truism. Y'all just deal with it. No one, all right, no one in the history of the world has ever 
uh, matured through success. That's just my observation of life. As I look around at people that I see who are incredibly wise, people who are incredibly mature, people who, are, who live closely with Jesus, they never got to that place because of one success upon another success upon another success. It's because they understood failure. It's because they experienced adversity. And when God brought that into their life, or when those things came into their life, they overcame those things, they grew closer to God through those things, and they became that great man and that great woman of God. Think about Moses, for example. Moses became mature and strong, not by growing up in the halls of Pharaoh's palace, but through 40 years on the backside of the deserts of Midian. Think about David or Daniel. Daniel became that great man of God needed for the preservation of God's people, not in the classrooms of Israel, but as a refugee living in a foreign land while facing down lions in the lion's den. How about Ruth? That great woman of God, Ruth, um, she would go on to become, the, I guess, the great-grandmother of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Lord Jesus himself. She did not ascend to that place of honor staying married to her high school sweetheart, rather endured tragic loss after tragic loss. And the Lord, for her faithfulness, raised her up and celebrated her life through the ages. Um, how about the great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby? who lost her eyesight at the hands of a quack doctor back when she was just a little girl. Um, she didn't write of her bitterness in those hymns. She didn't dwell on the unfairness of what was done to her. Instead, she wrote of her future hope of heaven. Listen to these words from Blessed Assurance. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture. She's talking about when she's going to be able to see again. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. When I get up there, right? She said, angels descending. That's what I'm going to see. Bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. How about Joseph, who spent nine years, I believe it was, in an Egyptian prison, falsely accused before God would restore him and bring him out of that? How about John Wesley, who came to America, landed on the shores at Savannah. He's got a little statue out there of him. I don't know if you knew that in Savannah. Um, and he, he, he left Savannah after failing miserably as a missionary to the Americas. He thought the Lord had called him into ministry, and he was going to do this ministry. And he came here to do that ministry, following the Lord's leading. And he failed miserably, went home, wiped the dust from his feet. He said, I, just, I don't think I'm going to be able to do ministry. But it was then that he was ready to go and turn the world upside down for God. Friends, the list is long, and the list is consistent. God never uses success to mature anyone. Number three, third reason, and this is my last point. Third reason why bad things happen to good people. Number one is because we live in a fallen world. That accounts for a lot of the suffering in the world. Number two is because nobody ever became mature through success. God uses adversity to refine us and to prepare us, potentially, for a greater work ahead. And finally, number three, why do bad things happen to good people? It's because sometimes God is working out a plan for his glory that requires our suffering. This makes me think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He got, knelt down beside that rock. It's Thursday night, late in the night. He's going to be on the cross the next morning. He's seen men die on crosses before. He knows the pain. He knows what he's going to have to endure as a result of going to that cross. And Jesus prayed there, kneeling down there beside that rock, uh, let this cup pass from me. I mean, I hear some apprehension. I hear some fear in those words. 
But in the plan of God, God the Father needed God the Son to go to the cross, and willingly, Jesus went. Sometimes in the plan of God, suffering is what is required. On February the 18th of 1812, a young man and his wife sailed from America to the Far East to a relatively unknown country called Burma. They went in response to God's call on their life to go serve internationally as missionaries. Um, That young man's name was Adoniram Judson. I got a picture of him for you here. Uh, That first baby that Adoniram and his wife Anne had died before they ever got to Burma. Anne was so ill when they got to Burma that she had to be carried off of the boat on a stretcher. Quickly, Judson ended up in jail for preaching the gospel. They chained him up by his ankles upside down for days on end. He, had, he almost died of disease while he was in jail. Um, in the first 14 years, listen to this, he buried his wife Anne while they were in Burma. He buried all of the children that he and Anne had together in Burma. He was in and out of jail. He preached for six years in the streets of Burma before he ever had his first convert. He buried his second wife in Burma. He buried three more children from his second wife in Burma. He wrote home to America trying to get people to come and join him in the ministry, and nobody would come. I mean, who could blame him, right? You say, well, why didn't he just give up? I mean, why? nobody would blame him for going home and saying, you know what, this is just not working out. Why wouldn't he just come back to America? Why didn't he just come home to to New England? Why didn't he just wipe the dust from his feet and leave Burma behind? Because this man believed that the Burmese people were lost. That's why. 37 years, Judson stayed in Burma, most of it by himself. And by the time he died, Adoniram Judson had translated the entire Bible into the Burmese language. It's the same translation that they're still using in Burma today. And by the time he died, Adoniram Judson had established 63 churches in Burma. And by the time he died, Adoniram Judson had seen over 7,000 Burmese people give their lives to Christ. Why me? Why now? Because number one, we are residents of a fallen world. This is not heaven. Number two, why me? Why now? Because God uses failure and disappointment to mature us and refine us. He uses adversity to grow us into people that he can use. Success has never matured anyone. Why me, why now? Number three, because sometimes there's more going on in God's grand plan where God needs for us to suffer. God needs for us to go to, if you would, the cross in order for his great plans and his great purposes to be accomplished. You know, what's interesting is Job never found out the reason why. I mean, you read through the book of Job, we've got 42 chapters here, and Job just, the the book ends with Job and a question mark. I don't know. I don't know why any of this happened. Um, Job never finds out. But note Job's response, and I'm going to close with these words. Job chapter 1 and verse 20. After all this, this terrible day happens, It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Hmm. Sorry, there it is, right? (laughs) Wow. We may never know. We may never find out. Not until we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we'll see that tapestry that God was putting together. We may never know. 
But what God asks of us is for us to trust him through it. And that's what we see in Job's life. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you for the life of this great man of God, Job. Lord, he endured so much. Uh, so much of it was that unfair. It was unjust. We get that. He sees that. He never knew why. Yet, Lord, he never wavered either. He worshipped you. He trusted you. He put his life in your hands. Jesus, we just ask this morning, uh, that's a big ask of any of us. But Lord, we just ask that you would help us in the things that we face day in and day out, the things that have come our way in yesteryears. Lord, that we would, like Job, just call upon your name, rest in your presence, knowing that the great God of the universe saw all this coming and has a plan that he's working out for our good and for your glory. Lord, we give you this time of communion. We ask that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us, encourage us, guide us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.